And after the sermon, we'll also stand and sing from hymn 31, which speaks of the resurrection of our Lord and the life He brings to us. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the poet Gerard Hopkins has a, a, po- a poem, and it ends with a particular line. And it ends with, All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. And it's a somber summary of all of mortal life. Death, in his view, is that which follows man and nature everywhere. It's the great equalizer that has no regard for man's wealth, his status, his strength, his wisdom, his fame. No, death comes to rich and poor alike, to everyone. And death seems to have power over all. And it might have been such dark thoughts that inspired Hopkins to write, all life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. The fact that even every day, We end the day with sleep. We acknowledge that our strength and our energy is limited. That each each day dies with sleep. That we're finite. We won't live forever. And yet, even though be this the case, and even though death perhaps plays an important role in our our lives and an important role in human life, It's perhaps no understatement to say that our society or the world we live in doesn't really know what to do with death. If we look around us, attempts are made to avoid death. Perhaps we've seen funerals which revolve around the celebration of life, where death isn't even mentioned. Instead, we stress that no, people live on. They're immortal to our thoughts, or they are immortal because... They live on in the actions that they've done, in the lives that they have lived. And if we look around us, the partner of death, the aging of our bodies, is is fought tooth and nail. Our society encourages us, everyone, to hold on to our youthfulness and life as long as possible. Be that perhaps through cosmetics, or perhaps through dress, or perhaps just in behavior even though this means that we have, we're just fooling ourselves to think that we are younger than we are. Fooling ourselves that we perhaps could be immortal or that we perhaps could be forever young. And yet in the end, death is not fooled. So what are we to do with death? Are we as Christians supposed to cheat death as well or just ignore it? not mention it, consider it a a topic that's too big or too heavy to tackle in faith. And yet here, the glorious news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His victory over death comes in as a bright ray of light that we don't have to fool ourselves. The Scripture is very clear that death has been defeated, that death's power has definitively been broken by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that therefore we don't have to fear death and we don't have to pretend that it's not there. 
and that we don't have to desperately cling to life as if that's all that there is. That we don't have to live a eat and drink for tomorrow we die kind of life that Paul mentions. We don't have to because we have the promise of resurrected life in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this certainty of the resurrection that our text this afternoon speaks about. And we see that in this passage, and this is our theme, that Christ is truly risen, so we can be sure of our own resurrection. And first of all, we see that Christ is the first fruits. Second, that Christ brings life. And then lastly, Christ will destroy death. So first of all, Christ is the first fruits. Now with, now with death all around us, it's perhaps not, it's perhaps not easy to believe in a bodily resurrection. It isn't today, and it wasn't in Paul's day either. And our text this morning, or this afternoon, is part of a defense of the resurrection of the dead. Because even people in Paul's day did not readily believe such a doctrine. Verse 12 mentions that some, some of the Corinthians said that there is no resurrection of the dead. And we might wonder, there's, there's many commentaries that write about this, and we might wonder, like, why didn't the Corinthians believe, not believe in the resurrection of the dead? And there might be very many different reasons for that. And it's hard to know what their exact reasoning was. Perhaps it was another congregation, and as so many people, so many objections there were against the resurrection of the dead. And yet, it's not really a surprise that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. We look at the New Testament, and we even just see that in Paul going out to Athens. When Paul goes to Athens, he goes on to the Areopagus, and he starts speaking to people in Athens. And they listen to him as, until he mentions the resurrection from the dead. Once he mentions the resurrection from the dead, people are like, okay, thanks, Paul. We'll come. We'll, maybe we'll listen to you later. But they had a hard time believing in such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. And clearly the Athenians also struggled to believe in the resurrection of the dead, in this bodily resurrection. And we can just wonder, what do we think? Or what do we see in the world around us? I mean, when we visit a graveyard or a gravesite, can we readily imagine that people will be raised from the dead there? That people would rise from these tombs? And that if someone would come to us today or tomorrow and say, yes, we've, we've been to a graveyard and we've seen people rise from the dead, would we believe them? Or would we brush it off, thinking that these persons might be having visions or they might be having a very hard time dealing with their loss? Perhaps they're mentally ill. We just wouldn't believe them right away. The, the resurrection is just something that's so unnatural. Why would we believe someone who comes, tell, comes to us telling us that they have met people risen from the dead? And yet, isn't this exactly what happened with, at Christ's resurrection? Now, if we read the Gospels, that's exactly what happened. We have the women, Mary and Martha, they go to the tomb to take care of the dead, of the dead teacher. They are the ones going to the graveyard and yet coming back saying, look, we've seen Christ risen. This, we went to the tomb, we expected to find the dead, and we come back, we have met the living. And 
Strikingly, even the disciples couldn't believe it. They also thought this was unbelievable. Dead pe people don't rise from the grave. These, thi these things don't happen. You don't go to a tomb to meet the living, but to find the dead. And yet, not that Easter Sunday. Christ rose from the dead. Death could not hold Christ in the grave. And this is the gospel that Paul himself had preached in Corinth. And that's also what he reminds the Corinthians of in verses 3 and 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Corinthians had heard about the gospel message. and They had believed it. They had heard that Jesus was raised from the dead. And there's no doubt about it for Paul. And then Paul, in our text, or in verses 12, continues. And he says, look, if you can believe that Christ is risen from the dead, you also have to believe that the dead will be raised. The two are tied. You can't have the one without the other. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised either. That's verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is futile. And Paul just makes the case. If you don't believe that there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and we would be considered the most pitiable, pitiable of all people. And he, just, he gives a number of arguments in the verses 12 through 19. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, well, you're going to have to face cer certain consequences for your faith. And he says, first of all, we're the people that are most to be pitied in verse 19. Why? Well, if Christ hasn't been raised, then the gospel has no substance. There is no message about Christ rising from the dead and victory over death. It's not there. Christ is dead. If Christ is not raised, your faith is ineffective, he says. Why? Well, by faith we're united to Christ, and then Christ is just a man in the grave, a man who's dead. You would be believing in a dead man if Christ is not raised. And if you, Christ is not raised, sin is as powerful as ever. You're still in your sin, and God's wrath has not been appeased. Your sins are not atoned for. And lastly, Paul makes it clear that if Christ hasn't been raised, then also those who have passed away already will not be raised either because there is no life after the grave for anyone. Yes, if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised and our faith has no content. There is no gospel. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. And that's where Paul begins. That's where he flips around and says, no, the truth is, is that Christ has been raised. And Paul flips around his argument and he says, because Christ has been raised, there will also be a resurrection of the dead, of all people and of believers. We celebrate Easter, or Christ's resurrection. Therefore, there will be a final resurrection. And Paul is certain of both because they're tied, they're connected. You can't have the one without the other. The one points ahead to the other. And that's why Paul also calls Christ 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Christ is the first fruits, we know that there will be a greater harvest. Because the language of first fruits comes from the Old Testament, where farmers would, right, they would sow their seed and they would eventually see their crop grow, and at the end, the first of it would be presented before the Lord. Now, the farmers knew that all of their harvest belonged to the Lord. It was his gift to them. And yet they set this aside and presented it before the Lord, this first fruit, as a representation of their whole harvest. And so Paul says, Jesus is this first fruit, the first part, but he represents the whole. And as he has been raised, so also the rest will be raised. The first fruits is there. The harvest is yet to come. And that Christ's resurrection is just the first taste of the resurrection that is to come. And so it is very clear already in just these couple of verses that Paul knows the resurrection is, is unbelievable, but it's true. The disciples had to acknowledge it. The Corinthians had to acknowledge it. And even some Athenians came to acknowledge it. And so also we have to con confess it today. The dead will rise from the grave just as Christ arose. And this is the hope of the gospel. And without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope. And yet, if we confess that Christ is raised from the dead, that there is a gospel, we also have to confess that there will be a resurrection from the dead. That even though the graveyards we visit today will still be very quiet, one day, People will go there, and they will come back saying, we have met those who have passed away. They are alive. They have risen. And that day, no one will doubt the truth of the resurrection. That one day, our Savior will return, and that he will raise all people from the dead to judge the living and the dead. And all will be raised, and all will be judged. But those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord will receive life with him, so that the day of Christ's coming will be a day of joy and of life. So believe in Christ because he is risen, and that means that there is a final resurrection because he's the first fruits, and so there will be a harvest. And yet we can wonder Paul is so certain that these two are connected, yet we don't really see that today. I mean, we perhaps could believe that Christ is raised from the dead. We don't really see much of the final resurrection. How can we be so certain? How could Paul be so certain of this resurrection? Well, he just, Paul is so certain that he says that those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ, for them, resurrection is inevitable. In fact, just as we find that death is inevitable for all of us today, so resurrection will be inevitable for all when Christ comes, because Christ brings life. And that brings us to our second point. And Paul just explains it very briefly in the verses 21 and 22, where he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And it's very clear. Paul states the truth. All human beings die in Adam. And we see that. That's what Hopkins wrote about. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. 
That's what we see in this life. Death is an inevitable. And this is perhaps also the part that is confusing or where we wrestle the most. Because on the one hand, we look around perhaps at life, perhaps our own lives are, are around us, and we see that death more or less plays an important role in, in life in general. And so some might even say that light or death is just part of life. Just accept it. It's just a part of it. Some might even call something like that the, the cycle, the circle of life. Just one generation grows up, grows old, and gives birth to another generation. And this cycle just keeps on going. That's just the way it's meant to be. And maybe it even sounds a little bit, sounds appealing because death is just there and that's the way to deal with it. And yet at the same time, as, as normal and as natural as death perhaps seems to be, we, never, we can never accept it just as normal. Death is something frightening. And we don't accept death, we fight it. We, we resist it. And it causes us grief and pain, perhaps, to think about it, and especially as we experience it. And it's frustrating, too, because as much as we fight it and as much as we resist it, we can't overcome it. By virtue of being born, we know that we also die. And nothing is going to change that. And yet here we are reminded by Paul that Scripture doesn't speak of death as something that's normal, as something that's just part of life, or even the circle of life. It says very clearly that death came through a man in paradise. It came through Adam. Death entered paradise as a punishment of Adam and Eve's sin. But it wasn't part of the good life as God originally created it. Death is the foreign element in human life. No matter how used to it we get. And death of course, through Adam also has consequences for all people. And we read that again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that we all suffer because of Adam's sin and that we all will also face death as a consequence of sin. So it's true. Death is inevitable. But does that mean that death is in control or that death has the final word? No. Even though death is here and it takes its toll God gives us new life, resurrected life through Christ, that Christ actually brings life. For it says, for as, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as surely as we die because we, of, of the consequences of Adam's sin, so surely will we be resurrected because of Christ's work. Just as death was able to enter the world through Adam, through a man, so also resurrection life is able to enter this world through another man, through Jesus Christ. Death, which came through a man, can be overcome by another man, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings resurrection and who brings life. The reign of death can and has been broken. Scripture is very clear. It is not a circle. It ends with Christ. And this comparison 
Just brief comparison that Paul uses here between Adam and Christ, the inevitableness of death and the inevitableness of resurrection, emphasizing just the, the riches of belonging to Christ by faith. Because to belong to Jesus means that you are united to him. And we're so closely tied to him so that all that belongs to Christ now also belongs to us and is also made ours through the Holy Spirit. There's an inseparable bond here that when Christ is alive, so we also must be alive if we belong to him. And this bond is also described by Christ in perhaps more organic terms in John 15 verse 5, where he mentions a branch being united to a vine, where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's John 15 verse 5. And we recognize that, right? We see a tree or any other kind of plant that has branches. Well, if the, the roots are going to, and the plant is alive, so the branches are going to be alive. If the, uh, if the vine or if the tree is dead, so also the branches will be dead. I mean, that's no different in the tree in your backyard or out here as with the vine. And he says, so it is also with Christ. If you by faith belong to Christ and Christ is alive, then you also will be alive. You belong to him, and you belong to a living Savior, so you will also be alive. Because the life that is in Christ, that runs through the veins of the vine, will also run through the branches. The vine is alive, so the branches will be alive. That's why Paul is so certain that there will be a resurrection. And because we have this the certainty of this life in Christ, we deal with death differently than society or the people around us. And there's many different ways in which society perhaps deals with death, and I'll just mention two ways. First of all, perhaps people, like I mentioned, perhaps mask it or they ignore it or they try to make it something nice. I mean, but Scripture is very clear that death doesn't have to be made something that it is not. It doesn't have to be made something beautiful or something to be celebrated. Death is the result of sin, and it is an enemy, as Paul goes on to explain. It is not part of life as God originally created it, and so we shouldn't treat it as it, like that as well. The fact is that it's the foreign element in life, and that therefore it will cause us grief, and it will cause us to be full of tears, because it still is that enemy. And we can just think of Christ himself, who stood before the grave of Lazarus, and who also was angry and who shed tears. He showed it. His, he openly showed his grief. And he confronted death, both there by raising Lazarus from the dead, and he confronted death by also his own death and rising from the grave. Death wasn't something to be accepted. It was something to be overcome and conquered. And that's what Christ has done. And this battle, against, this battle against death should also keep us from just being perhaps complacent and just going perhaps in a different direction, in a completely different response. I mean, Paul describes this other response, and he says it's the let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die kind of response. And in history, it has also been considered the carpe diem, which is Latin for seize the day, where you go out, seize the day, live for this moment, because tomorrow you die. 
Or perhaps more recently, it has been translated into the motto of, you only live once. Just live out there. You only have today, perhaps. Death is coming for us all, so we better get most of it, most out of our lives today. And it's perhaps not hard to see that a lot of people react this way. If we look at a world where illnesses and perhaps even terrorist attack do threaten us with death, and we see that death does come suddenly. But considering this text and considering the life we have in Christ, we have to wonder, does it mean... Does death as part of our lives, does it mean that death and even the fear of death should be the main motivator of our lives? Should it, this fear be what determines our life? Or should the fact that we have a life in Christ be our motivator for life? Are we going to be guided by fear of death or going to be guided by the fact that we have this life, this eternal life in Jesus Christ and that this is as certain as the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. Our text asks us here to reconsider. Just look at the life that you have. This life is certain. Death doesn't have the final word. And so we can live today guided by this life in Christ. And we can look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has conquered death, who was victorious over death, and say that our life is hidden with Him. And as long as He is alive, we are alive, that our life is there with him, and no one can take that away from us, that not even the forces of death or sin or of evil could hinder that, because Christ has defeated death and has brought us life. And so we can deal with death differently. And yet, despite all the certainty Paul has, we still have to deal with the fact that Death is still a part of life. And why is this if the resurrection has come through Jesus Christ? Where is this certainty, the certainty that Paul is so em emphasizing so much in this passage? Where is that today? How does it fit? How does death fit with the plan that God has both for Christ's resurrection and for our resurrection? And this brings us to the last point that Christ will destroy death. And it's true. Today people still die. And believers still fall asleep and don't wake up. But this is according to God's plan of salvation. And Paul is clear. God's plan is being executed in order. And that means that Christ was the first fruits, and then will follow the resurrection in the end. And if we look at the verses 25 through 28... Paul just has this one argument, a fairly large argument, that just looks at all of world history, more or less, to say the resurrection is certainly to happen. And in fact, Paul's words even go back to paradise. And we see that God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them the garden and the world, and then he told them, he gave them the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living creature, everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. They were to have dominion and to subdue the earth. Human beings were to rule over creation under God. And yet we know that Adam and Eve fell. 
They didn't rule over creation under God, but instead tried to exalt themselves to become equal with God and to rule creation themselves. So, who was now going to be that servant that was going to actually fulfill this mandate? Who was actually going to subdue the earth? Well, we read the Old Testament and we see that, yes, we have the Israelites and we have many godly men, but they never really, they were in Israel. They never really went over all the earth. And we see that even the kings, King David and Solomon, were mighty men and they were often godly men, especially David as they ruled. And yet their kingdoms weren't perfect. Even they couldn't conquer their own enemies. The Philistines and the enemies of their days, never mind sin and death. Their kingdoms were limited. And yet, God promised David that there would be a son of David who would reign eternally. There is the promise that someone would reign over all of creation under God and to God's glory, and forever so. That's the promise we find in the Old Testament. And David even sings of this in, in Psalm 8, which is here quoted by Paul. And in Psalm 8, which asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And it says, Paul writes then, or sorry, David writes then in Psalm 8 that you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then it mentions all of creation that have been put under the feet of man. And we wonder, who fulfilled this promise? Who is this one who truly is the king over all of creation, who really subdues and has his dominion over all the earth? And we recognize, of course, that Christ is this son of David. He is the one who has all the power and all authority and who then also brings in subjection all of the earth. And that's where Paul begins. Look, Christ. Christ is the one who has, is bringing all things in subjection under him today. God's plan for man over all creation to subdue it and to have dominion over it is being fulfilled in Christ. And so we see that after Christ, also after Christ's resurrection, the gospel has gone out and all peoples and all nations are hearing of God or of Christ's reign and subduing themselves to him. But the message has gone out. Christ is risen. He is king. He has all power and authority. Bow for him. Praise him. Glorify him. And believe in him. And Paul says that all things will indeed be subject, made subject to Christ. And that Christ himself will be subject to God or to, as our text says, the one whom has put all things under his feet. That as Christ reigns over all, so he will be under God and that he will also, in the end, make sure that all things rightly honor and worship God for who he is so that in the end, God is all in all and so that creation is at peace and all acknowledge God and glorify him and his sovereign supremacy and sovereign power. And so this fact that finally there is this son of David who has all power and who is bringing all things in subjection to him, well, this fact has a couple of implications and is part of Paul's argument. 
And first of all, it means that Christ has all authority and all power, that he has absolute power. Sin, death, and the forces of evil have been defeated by Christ at the cross. And so there is no one who can challenge Christ's power today. That it's fact that Christ's enemies have tried to defeat him, that they tried to put him in, that they put him in the grave, that they tried to kill him and tried to cover up the light of the world, and yet they could not snuff it out. Christ lived so that the light of the world continues to shine and ever so brightly. That Christ lives, that he rose, and that therefore all his enemies have come to acknowledge that he is the one who reigns. And so it's clear that our resurrection will happen for Christ's rules supreme. There's nothing that can challenge him. So that in the end, even death will be destroyed, as Paul says in verse 26. Even death has no power over Christ anymore. And that therefore it will also have no power over those who belong to Christ. Because we belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in life and in death. And so, what can death do? What can death do but submit to Christ when he says, let the dead be raised? Death also will have to listen to Christ because Christ rules supreme. The second implication is that we, as we belong to Christ, also reign with him as kings. That the creation mandate is being fulfilled also today through us who belong to Christ and who go out into this world. And we see Paul emphasizing the same implications later on in verses 57 and 58, where he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. Paul's very clear, like, his ministry is not in vain, and neither will be the ministry of the Corinthians. I mean, I could, we probably can imagine that Paul would be frustrated. Here he is. He's ministering for Christ and for the Lord, and yet death also tainted much of his work. That also death and sin threatened to undo much of Paul's work. And yet Paul says, look, Christ reigns. His kingdom is coming, and therefore all my work is not in vain. Because if I work for the Lord, it certainly will last. And so we can have it perhaps today that we work and we live and we build up our existence. Perhaps we work in the church, we work at home, and we build up our lives. And yet we recognize that also death taints much of what we do. That as we live and as we work, we also grow older, have less energy, have perhaps less opportunities than we have in the past. That death does also taint all of our work. But should that keep us from doing our work? No, Paul says, look, Christ's kingdom is coming and a work done for him, living and working for the Lord, is never in vain because God's purpose will certainly stand. Christ is victorious and he reigns. He will destroy death. And therefore, whatever work is done for the Lord is never done in vain because his purpose will stand. God's, or Christ's resurrection guarantees this. And so, 
perhaps the poet says, all life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. And such might be indeed the observations in our lives as we look around us. But Scripture has something else to say. As a matter of fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, and therefore we are certain of our resurrection. And that's first of all because Christ is the first fruits. The harvest is coming, Paul says. He lives so that those who belong with him surely will live. That if Christ is alive, the branches will be alive as well. And that if Christ rules supreme, even death and sin cannot stand against him. And that when he calls those who belong to him to live with him, even death cannot stand in his way. That death will even be destroyed in the end as the last enemy. God's purpose will stand, and so a life lived for him is never in vain. For in the end, God will be all in all. And so we can acknowledge him already in our lives. So Christ is risen. He lives. He reigns. He will come again to raise all who belong to him. So is it true that all life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep? No. Not in Christ. For in Christ, all death Christ does end, and our death is as sleep. Amen.